Corey. Yeah, we're just so in step uh, with the Spirit of God that we wore the same thing today. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, not sure if you can see this, but I'm a little nervous. It's a little uh, shaky. I actually poured my communion cup over my notes just now as we were <laughs> taking communion. So that's how it's going for me. But the good news is it is not uh, my power, it is not my strength that I stand before you and bring the word of God. It is the power of God. It is about him. Uh, it, the message is his. It is not my words. Uh, so I'm excited to preach this morning. Uh, but before I do, I do want to share just a little bit about how the Lord brought my wife Lauren and I here. So before moving to Beloit, we were working for a campus ministry called Crew. We were living in Paris, France, working with college students, uh, helping to launch campus ministries across the city of Paris. Then COVID hit, and we ended up moving back. Now that was abruptly, but we came back to the States with two plans. The first was to get married. We got engaged in February of last year. That was one of the last normal things that we were able to do before uh, COVID hit. And then the second thing, uh, we were planning on continuing to work for crew, and we were going to move out to the Northeast and help launch campus ministries out there from Boston to New York City. There's a team based in Providence, uh, and we just felt the Lord's call to head in that direction. But obviously, I'm here today, so clearly not everything went according to uh, my plans. Um, the Lord was working in our lives, uh, even when we did not know it. Um, so we, like I mentioned, came back uh, right at the start of COVID. And very quickly then, like many other engaged couples, we realized that COVID was going to be a bit of an obstacle in planning a wedding. Uh, we ended up changing our plans and moved up our wedding. We were planning in October, and then we moved it up to July. But we still got married here at the farm, uh, just with a smaller ceremony. Um, but it was really wonderful. Corey uh, officiated for us, uh, and that was a blessing for us. And it was a wonderful day. Uh, and so even as we look back, we're glad that it worked out the way that it did. Um, but not long before our wedding, the Lord shut the door to the opportunity that we had in the Northeast. And that was very uh, surprising to us. That came very abruptly. And we were shocked. We were hurt. We were disappointed. We were angry with the Lord, wondering what he was doing in our lives. So how did we end up here? Well, We'd been doing premarital counseling with Corey back in the spring of last year. So last May, we're sitting on his deck. Uh, that was my first time getting to know him. Corey was Lauren's youth pastor when she was in high school. Um, but this was my first time getting to meet him. So we're just getting to know each other. We're talking about ministry, and we're realizing, hey, there's some similarities here. We have similar passions and similar ministry philosophies. And we actually joked, wouldn't it be funny if we ended up working together one day? Well, here we are, and it's funny how... The Lord works. So when the Lord, you know, shut the door to the opportunity in the Northeast, I reached out to Corey and we began praying and talking about what the opportunity of a residency might look like, uh, and the Lord provided. Uh, and so here we are. I'm in month nine now. Um, the Lord also provided for Lauren, my wife. She's been working for the Rockford Area Habitat for Humanity as their communications coordinator. Uh, and so the Lord has been faithful. He has been providing over this last year, and that's been a, a steady theme in our lives. Um, so that's kind of just the, the facts, the context of how we're walking into this morning. Um, but there's more there. There's more emotional and spiritual ramifications from that transition. But I'm going to get into that a little bit later on in 
the sermon. So what are we doing today? Well, we're finishing our series, Jesus is Greater. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about all the different things that Jesus is greater than in our lives. And today we'll be looking at a passage in Philippians 3 and talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So as Corey likes to say, please do me a favor, track down a Bible and turn with me to Philippians 3. I will read it, we will pray, and then we will get to work. We'll be reading verses 1 to 14. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone gathered here in person, for those gathered online as well. Lord, I thank you that there is surpassing worth in your Son. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in our hearts and help us to believe that truth this morning. And I pray that the words that leave my mouth this morning would be honoring and glorifying to you. Father, would I decrease and would you increase this morning? We pray in your name. Amen. So we'll be looking at a couple of areas, things that we place our confidence in outside of Christ, and then we'll We'll talk about why Christ is worthy of our full confidence. So we start verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And the Philippians are a people who are poor. They are afflicted. They're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And yet Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Now that might sound like that callous response, right? We pour our hearts out to someone. We say, here's the things that I'm going through. Here's my trouble. And someone says, well, just have more faith or change your attitude. But that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul can empathize with what the church in Philippi is going through. He's writing this letter from prison. He's in prison because of sharing his faith. And I think we can also empathize. Of course, there's different circumstances, but much of the last year, has been filled with circumstances that are less than ideal, right? Not many of us would choose to go through the things that we've gone through. We've experienced losses of many kinds. Now, that might be things like losing 
plans for a vacation or the opportunity to see family over the holidays. Or maybe you've lost a loved one in the last year, a, a friend or a, a close family member. You see, the word is saying rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because our circumstances do not satisfy us. We don't put our hope or our confidence in our circumstances because they cannot save us. Rather, we rejoice in the Lord. Pastor Tony Marita has a quote that says, you don't get joy when you get what you desire. You get joy when you realize what you deserve. Once more, you don't get joy when you get what you desire. You get joy when you realize what you deserve. Church, what do we deserve this morning? We deserve wrath from God. We deserve eternal separation from him because of our sin and our brokenness. And yet, what do we get? We get Jesus. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, he reconciled us back to God. And now we can have a personal relationship with him, eternity with him. So we don't put our joy in our circumstances because our circumstances cannot save but we rejoice in the Lord. So I say to you today, wherever you are at, whether in good circumstances or poor, easy or difficult, rejoice in the Lord. We continue then in verse one, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now this is setting up the word of caution that we see in verse two. It says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what are all these things? referring to. Well, at that time, there are a group of Jewish leaders that are preaching the gospel that says, Jesus plus your good works leads to salvation. And Paul's saying, all that is is a false gospel. It does not save. And so he calls them three different names, and each of those names have a level of irony to them. The first is dogs. Now, that same word dogs is how Jews would refer to Gentiles in that day, right? Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews, did not like each other. There's animosity and contempt there, and so Jews would call Gentiles dogs. Now there's this irony because Paul is then calling these Jewish leaders dogs. He calls them evildoers, which is ironic because they're sitting there preaching the gospel. It says, your good works save you. And he says, no, all you're doing is evil. Another translation calls them evil workers. Finally, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, why is this? They're these Jewish leaders are preaching to Gentiles and they're saying it's necessary that you be circumcised in order to be saved. It's these external works that bring you salvation. Now, where's that coming from? In Genesis 17, as the Lord gives his covenant to Abraham, he commands that Abraham go and be circumcised as a sign of that covenant. Now, that tradition continues throughout Jewish history that Jewish boys, when they're eight days old, are circumcised. But in the New Testament, a question's raised, what saves us? Is it the external works or is it what's on the inside of faith in Christ? And in Romans 4, Paul breaks that down. That it's not circumcision that saved Abraham. It wasn't his good works. It was his faith. Again, not the external, but the internal. So Paul says, all you're doing, if you're preaching a gospel that says it's necessary to be circumcised, all you're doing is mutilating the flesh. But in verse 3, we see this contrast. What does it mean to be a true believer? For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Church, true believers worship God by the Spirit of God. Now, that's not just through singing and music like we do on Sunday mornings. That's a piece of it. But it's been walking in step with the Spirit in everything that we do, being in awe and reverence of God because of who he is. Secondly, we glory in Christ. What does the word glory there mean? It means to boast. We boast in the person and work 
of Jesus. And then finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. Why? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't put confidence in ourselves because we cannot save ourselves. We have all fallen short. So we place our confidence in Christ. We boast in Christ because he alone is able to save. In Matthew 7, Jesus shares the parable of building a house on the foundation of sand, a weak foundation versus that of a firm foundation. And that same analogy applies here. If you're putting your confidence in your good works and your own ability to save, you're building your house, you're building your life upon a foundation that will not remain. It will fail. Rather, we place our faith in Christ, our full confidence in him because he is our firm foundation. He alone is able to save. So what are some other things that we put our confidence in for salvation, for righteousness before God? Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul lists out a spiritual or religious resume. It says, because of these things, I counted myself righteous before God. First, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, that ritual, Paul considered his rituals to be of saving worth to you. Are there rituals that you hold to that you think make you righteous with God? Is it how often you attend church or how often you read your Bible or how often you pray? Do you run before God and say, God, look, because of these things, I'm righteous. Paul says that he's of the people of Israel, that because of his race, he's righteous. Do you think the same thing? He says that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a particularly distinguished tribe within the nation of Israel. So what he's saying there is because of my rank, because I'm better than others, I'm righteous. Do you think the same thing? In Luke 18, Jesus preaches the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector going into the temple to pray. And what do we see the Pharisee do? He walks into the temple and he boasts to God about all the things that he does, how much he gives to the poor. And then he even turns to the tax collector next to him and in prayer says, God, I thank you that I am not like the sinner. Meanwhile, the sinner is on his knees beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it is he who walked away made right with God. Do you consider yourself better than others and therefore righteous? Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrew, that there are traditions that he holds to that, that make him righteous. Do you think the same thing? Finally, he says that as to the law, he's a Pharisee and that if there could be righteous, righteousness gained under the law, that he is blameless. Is there a level of morality or of rule-keeping that you hold to that you believe saves you, makes you righteous before God. Church, don't place your, your confidence in your good works. Don't place your confidence in your own ability to save. Place your confidence in Christ because he alone is. Now, why do we place our confidence in Christ? Look at verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We place our confidence in Christ because in him there is surpassing worth. Now, there's a nuance there in the verb tense that Paul uses in verse 7 and verse 8. In verse 7, he uses the past tense. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. But then in verse 8, he uses the present tense. Indeed, I count. Now, what's that? referring to. Well, he's writing this letter 20-some years after his 
conversion after the moment that he accepted Christ. And so in verse 7, when he's using the past tense, he's thinking back to that moment. When I accepted Christ, when I considered the gospel and saw what Jesus had done for me, every bit of my old life, all my accomplishments, every bit of self-righteousness that I believe I had through my good works, it was a loss. But then in verse 8, he says, indeed, I count. Now, presently, he's writing to the church and saying, look, still today, I count all things a loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ, including his time as a follower of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, well, Paul, of course you have counted your life as a follower of Jesus as a loss because you've been following Jesus, you've gained Jesus. I mean, surely your life has been easy. Wrong. Paul's life was anything but easy. We as believers know that following Jesus is not this simple cure that removes every bit of trial or trouble from our lives. The last year of our lives has proven that. And Paul was the same. He's beaten, he's whipped, he's shipwrecked, he's in prison right now writing this letter, all because of the fact that he's preaching the gospel and following Christ. And yet he says, still, I count everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Do you believe the same thing? He continues on, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now that word rubbish literally means excrement or dung. It might be best translated in a little word that I can't say from up here, otherwise I might not be allowed to preach again. <laughs> you see, for us, when we accept Christ, when we see the beauty of Christ, our righteousness that was based on our own good works, our own ability to save isn't just less important than Christ, as if Christ just kind of barely did enough to inch himself ahead, to cross the finish line just ahead. It is worthless to us, and that's what Paul's saying. It is rubbish, it is worthless, it is detestable to me. Why? Because there is surpassing worth in knowing Christ. Again, to use that analogy of building a house, building a house on a terrible foundation, that based upon your works, your own ability to save, it is worthless, it will not hold up, but Christ will. But now when you hear that Jesus is worth the loss of all things, it begs that question, do you really believe that? Is Jesus really worth the loss of all things in your life? Do you see the surpassing worth in him? Because scripture is very clear. Scripture says, yes, he is without a doubt. But as followers of Jesus, we know that that is a harder thing to believe than just to say. Right? We can put lip service to that and say, David, of course, there is surpassing worth in Jesus. But to believe that in our hearts is another thing. And that's a question that Lauren and I have been wrestling with over this last year. Right? The Lord led us out of Paris very abruptly with the start of COVID. And it meant that we had to leave Paris without being able to say goodbye to friends there. People that we had ministered to for almost two years. It meant that we couldn't say goodbye to the city that we love. We miss it daily. And it was heartbreaking to have to leave. We still, you know, ache just thinking about that. Then the Lord shuts this door to the opportunity in the Northeast, and we're going, God, what are you possibly doing in our lives? We're angry with him. We feel abandoned by him. We feel rejected, like, Lord, why would you give us this burden for this people group? Why would you put this passion in our hearts if only to close the door? 
one of the things that the Lord, I think, has been teaching us in this season are the things that we count more valuable than Christ, right? The things that we are not willing to count as loss for the sake of Christ. And for me, what that looks like is security and control. I want to be able to make plans for my life and have hopes and dreams for what my future is going to look like and say, God, there is surpassing worth in Jesus except in those things. Everything is a loss except for that. What the Lord is saying here in his word is that there is nothing that is of greater worth than Jesus. Do you believe that this morning? I think one of the ways that the Lord has humbled me is the reminder that I am unable to believe that truth in my own strength. I can't conjure up a faith that is strong enough, that can persevere enough to say that without a doubt, 100% of the time, I believe in the surpassing worth of Jesus. I need Jesus to believe in his surpassing worth. And so do you this morning. And so if that is you, if you struggle with that, more likely when you struggle with that, because we all will, plead with the Lord that in his grace he would, he would show us the surpassing worth of Jesus, that he would fill us with a faith beyond our own, a strength beyond our own, in order to cling to the person and work of Jesus, that we put no confidence in our flesh and our own ability to save, but our full confidence is in him. Now, why is there surpassing worth in Christ? There's surpassing worth in Christ because of what he has accomplished for us, right? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and because of that, he made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Look, the start of verse 9, it says, and be found in him, that we are found in Christ because he paid the penalty for sin that we deserved. He took our place on the cross, and now it says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We are given Christ's righteousness, right? Our works, our own self-righteousness through trying to earn favor with God was not enough, but now Christ has given us his righteousness. How does that work? Well, Christ came and lived a very real life, and it was a perfect, holy life according to God's holy standard. And in doing that, he, he gave us his righteousness, that, that when he died and he took her place, paid the penalty for sin, he alone was able to give us his righteousness so that when God looks at us, God doesn't see our sin and our brokenness, but he sees the perfection of Christ. Now imagine this courtroom setting, right? God is judge, and we are sitting before him as defendants. We're pleading our case saying, God, this is why we deserve eternity with you. This is why we deserve to be made right with you. Now, our, our case is filled with empty words because God clearly sees the sin and the brokenness. He sees our depravity, and he quickly determines that we are guilty before him. He picks up the gavel, and he's about to slam it down, and just before he does, Christ bursts through the chamber doors and says, stop, wait. They are mine. Don't judge them on their account. Judge them on mine. They've been bought with the price of my blood shed on the cross. Christ has imparted upon you, he's given you his righteousness that again, God doesn't see your sin, he sees the beauty and the perfection and the holiness and the blamelessness of Christ. You are justified with him, you are reconciled 
to him, you are redeemed. Why? Because of your own works? No, because of Christ. Furthermore, we are being sanctified. We are being made like him. Look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, the power of his resurrection, that's the Holy Spirit, right? The same power that lives in that rose, or excuse me, raised Christ from the grave now lives in us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified, which is a theological term for being made like Christ. Now that's Easter Sunday, right? We love celebrating the risen Lord. We sing praise songs and glory in the fact that Christ rose from the grave. But what follows that in verse 10? And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now that's where you want to stop me and say, David, surely the text can't actually say that. Surely we're not called to suffering. Let's just focus on the power of the resurrection. That's what's there in the text, plain as day. And last week, we were looking at Psalm 34, and Corey was preaching on that, saying that as believers, we're not promised an escape from suffering in this life. We know we live in a fallen, broken world, and so we will experience suffering and troubles of many kinds in this life. But as Corey said last week, God is our deliverer from suffering. Furthermore, one of his purposes in it is that we would be made like Christ. That through the suffering and, and the trials that we experience, we would be conformed into the image of his son, that becoming like him in his death. So I say to you, in whatever suffering you're going through now, or whatever suffering you will experience, because you most likely will, are you willing to let the glory and the power of God be displayed in and through your suffering that you might be made more like him. You are being sanctified because of Christ. Finally, one day you will be glorified with him. Look at verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now there's two things there that are important. The first is presently today, we live with a resurrection hope because Christ rose from the grave. Right, we know that everything in this earth, including any suffering that we go through, is temporary. It will not last. And that one day, Revelation 21, Christ will wipe away every tear. Every pain and sorrow will be gone and, and we will have eternity with him. We know that we are not citizens of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven, as Paul goes on to say later in chapter 3. Secondly, it's a promise of what is yet to come, that we too will experience a physical resurrection. We will be given new heavenly bodies and we will be glorified with Christ for eternity. So why is there surpassing worth in knowing Jesus? There's surpassing worth in knowing Jesus because he has justified you. He is sanctifying you and one day you will be glorified with him. Do you believe that this morning? Finally, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Church, do you share in Paul's humility? Presently today, do you consider yourself to have already been made like Christ? 
Do you consider yourself to be perfect? Or like Paul, are you saying, look, I have not yet gained that. I have not yet been made like Christ. See, the process of sanctification is a lifelong process, and we have not yet achieved that, but what do we do? Look at the second half of verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We press on. That's language that means exerting effort, right? We try. Do we exert effort because our effort can save? No. We press on. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made us his own. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And now if you have bent your knee, if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and turned from your sin and acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, you are found in him. You have personal relationship with him and you are his. Now Christ didn't snap his fingers and just draw you to himself willy-nilly, but he came and lived a very real life and then he died a very real death in order to win you win you back and to reconcile you to God. Again, the price that was paid was Christ's blood shed on the cross. So we are to press on to be made like Christ. What does that look like in our lives? Look at verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, what do we forget that lies behind? We forget our accomplishments every achievement or every bit of good work, the rituals, the morality, the rule-keeping, everything that we thought earned us righteousness with God, we forget those things. They're worthless and detestable to us. But it's more because Christ died on the cross and then rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. We forget our sin. We are no longer defined by it. We are not slaves to sin, but Christ has purchased victory for us. Our sin is no longer an obstacle to God, right? It used to be an obstacle that we were unable to cross no matter how much we tried, no matter how much effort we exerted, we could not make ourselves right with God. But because Christ came down, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we are made right with him, and he has made a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So we forget our sin because it no longer defines who we are, but rather we are found in Christ. We are Christ's. Our identity is in him. And then once again, we strain forward. Again, intentional, actionable language. What do we press on or what do we strain forward to? Verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on to the prize. What is the prize? It's Jesus. We press on because there is surpassing worth in him. Why is there surpassing worth in him? Because he has justified you. He has reconciled you. He has redeemed you. You are now being sanctified. And one day you will be glorified with him. Guys, the prize is not salvation. It's not an escape from sin or an escape from suffering so that everything in your life can just be good. The prize is Jesus. So as we wrap up, I have a few questions to ask you. Is there a prize in your life today that you count more valuable than Jesus? Now I want you to resist the urge to answer that question 
the way that you know it ought to be answered, right? Like, David, come on, we know the answer is, of course not. Of course there's not a prize in my life that I count more valuable than Jesus. But I want you to pause and really reflect. My prayer for, for me this morning, for you all this morning, is that the Holy Spirit would convict us of any prizes that we are counting more valuable than Jesus. Is it money? Is it success or achievement? Is it your family or your job? Maybe it's your politics. Maybe you're like me and it's security and comfort and plans and hopes and dreams for the future. What do you need to change to count all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? Or let me paint this picture for you. If I could stand up here today and offer you heaven and every single one of its benefits, you would live eternally. There would be no more suffering, no more pain. Every single benefit of heaven except for one thing, Christ is not there. Would you still want heaven? Because if you do, you have a prize in your life that you count more valuable than Christ. Now there is good news for you this morning if that is the case. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace alone is sufficient for you. And so if you're like me and there are prizes in your life that you count more valuable than Christ, and I would go so far as to say there probably are because I love you all, but you are broken, sinful people. What are we to do except the Lord's grace? Turn from that prize, let it go, count it as worthless rubbish and cling to the beauty and the magnificence of the person and work of Jesus. Right, again, ask the Lord saying, God, help me to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Acknowledge that you cannot hold to that belief on your own. Remember the beauty of the gospel. You were bought with the price of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Now you are reconciled, redeemed, and justified. So forget every prize, every bit of sin that was once an obstacle. Leave it behind, run from it, flee from it, and cling to the beauty and the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is surpassing worth in knowing your Son. I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, would you convict us of the prizes, the areas of our lives where we place our confidence in things outside of Christ. And Lord, in your grace, would you gently draw us back to you. Father, I pray for a faith for all of us that, that we would be able to know and to comprehend and to to hold fast of the steadfast worth of knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Would we flee from all other things and count them as rubbish? Father, thank you for what you have accomplished in the gospel that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Would we hold on to that truth and see the beauty and the magnificence of the person